0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor.
1: And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 15th of September 2021.
0: And Norman, as you know only too well, as someone who lives in New South Wales in the city of Greater Sydney, when you guys reach 70% double dose vaccination, there's going to be some restrictions easing for people who are vaccinated. Uh, we do seem to get a lot of questions, Norman, about whether you're going to go back to the gym. I think our listeners just like to imagine you pumping iron or something like that. But And you've said that you're not going to. And one of the, the questions that I suppose that raises is not so much about your personal decision about what you do and, and the level of risk, but why it should be fair for people to who are vaccinated to go out and do stuff that other people can't do, whether that's a good policy or not a good policy.
1: Last night on 7.30, I covered this and the, um in talking to Mark Stuve at the Burnett Institute. And here are the variables here. So when there are large case numbers in the community, there's a lot of virus circulating. And when New South Wales reaches... double vaccination, which is probably three weeks from now, maybe four, but probably three because vaccination rate is pretty good, then there's still going to be a lot of cases each day. There may be as many as 1,000 cases each day or certainly in the high hundreds. That's a lot of virus circulating in the community. And the problem is that if you send vaccinated people into indoor environments where they're breathing each other's air, then if somebody's there who's infected, they are going to infect vaccinated people because the current vaccines with delta protect against infection or reduce the risk of infection by maybe 40 at the most 50%
0: they're still very effective at protecting against severe disease but it doesn't mean that you can't catch the virus in some form or another is that what you're saying
1: that's right so if you catch the virus you're not going to be a burden to the hospital system or become sick yourself which is great but when you've got large numbers of cases circulating you could catch the infection at a bar, at a restaurant, or at the gym. And then you take it home with you, and you spread it to people at home while you're asymptomatic and don't know that you've got it. And if people are at home aren't vaccinated, they will catch it. Or if you've got kids, they could catch it. And then they could go out and spread it to other people when they don't know they've got it. So bars and restaurants, when you've got high case numbers, even though the people in them are vaccinated, they can catch the infection and take it out and spread. And the evidence is that with Delta, you have very high viral loads, even if you're vaccinated, and you pass it on to other people. So on a population level, yeah, it's great. There's a 50% reduction in the risk of being infected, but that still leaves 50% who can be. And that's why I'm not going to go back to the gym, because while I'd feel safe in terms of me being there, catching it, and my getting sick or not, I'd be happy that I'm very well protected, I could catch it and take it home or pass it to people at the ABC or elsewhere. And that's not a a risk that I particularly want to take, nor indeed perhaps government should think about that too, is it a risk that they want to take because they are going to get potentially super spreader events as a result of opening up to vaccinated people.
0: So what does Mark from the Burnett Institute say we should be doing then? I don't think there's a bad thing in giving people an incentive to be vaccinated if they've gone out and and done that and they want to sort of get back to normal life. Like that's the goal is that we sometime, sometime in the future do get back to something that resembles our previous life. What is a better, safer pathway then?
1: What he argues for is a much more staged approach where you don't have quite as big an opening as New South Wales is suggesting, at 70%. There are people who think, the Doherty group, think you should wait to 80%. There's nothing in the Doherty model that suggests you should do this at 70%. They thought you should wait to 80%. And you've just got to be careful how you open up and do one or two things at a time and see what the results are. Because the risk is that you overwhelm the hospital system. And that group, Osage, that we talked about in yesterday's CoronaCast, they are predicting quite serious surges in hospital demand towards the end of the year, as is Mark Stuve. And the problem there is not just the demand for beds for people with COVID-19. It's also that if you have a heart attack, you have a stroke, if you have cancer, if you need a major operation, the beds may not be available to you for regular treatment. And these are major public health issues.
0: That's actually a question that we've had a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. One person from New South Wales has written in saying, Before COVID-19, public hospitals were understaffed and stretched. They barely cope with the current cases in lockdown conditions. What's being done to prepare for the inevitable surge of cases when lockdown ends? And are there statistics to show which patients are being denied access to critical care units because COVID patients occupy the beds?
1: These are huge issues. So we had a report yesterday that at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, they're closing down a ward where they look after young people with mental health issues. So during a pandemic, when people are locked down and young people are in psychological extremis, they're closing down a ward which looks after young people with serious mental health issues, which is just gobsmacking. But that's one of the things that's happening, and you could argue that that's not what should be happening. Uh, that's what that should be a high priority. And St. Vincent said, "Well, they've got virtual care possible. Uh, they've been doing virtual treatment in this uh, in this facility. Actually, they haven't." So here are major issues that start to arise and there are major ethical issues about who gets to get treated, who gets a bed, who gets admitted and who doesn't. And the community needs to be involved. I've been talking to Dr. Will Cairns, a palliative care physician in Townsville. And he has led a lot of the debate around this about the decision-making that doctors are going to make in October, November and December about who gets into intensive care beds. And we may be making decisions about who gets into hospital at all.
0: Yeah, really, really serious ethical considerations there. And like you say, the intensive care peak in New South Wales, at least, is predicted to happen in about October. But the actual case numbers in New South Wales maybe if you squint and tilt your head a bit, look like they might be starting to flatten?
1: They are flattening. So it's what we've described before in CoronaCast. So they're flattening and they will go down a bit and they'll be going down when you hit the 70% double vaccination rate. And then we'll open up venues, indoor venues to vaccinated people. And almost inevitably, we're going to get another surge of cases. So at that point, there's going to be a crossover in New South Wales. Cases going down and opening up At the same time, that is exactly the time when hospital demand will be at its greatest. But then you might see a surge going up in November, which means in December, you're going to see serious hospitalisation problems in New South Wales.
0: Who's doing that modelling?
1: The Burnett has done that modelling and that Osage group has has done that modelling. Victoria is going to announce their roadmap later on this week. And they've got the advantages that they're running behind New South Wales in terms of vaccination and making those decisions. They won't necessarily have to rely on modelling. They'll see what happens in New South Wales, which will determine how they open up.
0: Well, at least on the vaccination front, they are, they're rocketing towards that, that first 70% milestone. And the ACT is extending its lockdown for another month, even though the cases there, they're kind of, they're just sort of the same as they've been for some weeks now.
1: They are. But as we know, the potential to take off is there and they are sitting on a knife edge.
0: So in the other states and territories of Australia, there's it's a really different sort of scenario. While the vaccine supply in New South Wales and Victoria and the ACT is, has been patchy, it's getting better. In South Australia, the Northern Territory and Western Australia, they've all said that the Pfizer vaccine is now available to anyone, including people aged over the, over the age of 60, which isn't the case in other jurisdictions.
1: No. So obviously they've got more Pfizer than they've admitted to, and they should be giving their Pfizer to New South Wales and Victoria if they can afford to give it to over 60-year-olds who don't need it. Over 60-year-olds can have Astra, and they've obviously got enough to give 12-year-olds Pfizer, which is great. They should now give their Pfizer to the states that really need it for their young people to get immunised as quickly as possible because they've got so much they can give it to the over-60s.
0: I mean, should they need to give them away, though? At least in uh, Western Australia, Mark McGowan, the Premier there, said that, I mean, the vast majority, 84% or something, of people over the age of 60 have had at least their first dose of AstraZeneca. Why should they not open up that eligibility to those older people?
1: Well, uh, you just... Deliberately provoking me here Tegan. But
0: go <laughs> well, on, give it to me.
1: So have 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 they got a plan in place for twelve to fifteen year olds and giving and really opening up to twelve to fifteen year olds? What's happening in Aboriginal communities in Western Australia and in South Australia? Are they sure that their disadvantaged communities are well covered? Now have you got those all ticked? I understand the argument that there's not many six-year-olds left to immunize, therefore it's not going to be a huge drain on the Pfizer doses. But it also has, na- has national implications if you're 60 years old and over and you've been hanging on for Pfizer and you see that happening in Northern Charities, South Australia, oh, well, I'll just hang on in New South Wales and Victoria. It has major implications for people holding back in those other states as well, which have achieved fairly high levels of immunisation. It's true, but you can't afford any delay at the moment.
0: Well, Janice is asking this saying, why are you blasting over 60s who do want to hold on for Pfizer?
1: I would simply argue that the over 60s can, can have Astra very safely and we can divert Pfizer to where it's needed most, even if it's a relatively small number of doses. For example, we are probably going to have to give booster shots to people in residential aged care and in health care and on the front line because it's getting on to six months when they've had their first dose. And over the next month or two, they're going to need booster shots. So we're going to deny them booster shots because we're giving unnecessary Pfizer to over 60s. These are the questions of allocation, which one hopes that those states and territories have have thought through.
0: Well, speaking of boosters, there's a consortium of experts writing in the Lancet medical journal uh, this week saying that maybe we shouldn't be giving out booster shots quite yet and we're talking about allocation of vaccines that maybe on a global level giving those vaccines that would have been given as boosters to countries which haven't been able to give their first vaccinations yet would actually benefit us all globally more than giving out boosters.
1: Yeah and the core of their argument without going in we'll put the reference on our website but the core of the argument is that we actually don't and it's true we don't have random Trials of the boosters to make sure that they are completely safe, that they've got the same safety profile as the first two doses, and really understand the effectiveness of the booster in the long term, and really also understand the true meaning of the decline in effectiveness over time. We're relying very heavily on Israeli data and others, and they're questioning the quality. So, what they're saying is. It's early days to be jumping to that conclusion when you could be diverting doses to low-income countries who badly need to get immunised in the first place.
0: Well, lots of vaccine chat there. If you've got questions or comments, please send them to us by going to abc.net.au slash coronacast and we'll be back tomorrow.
1: See you then.